one, murder at Harvard Medical School. This is History's Forgotten Headlines. Here, we revisit some of America's most notorious and shocking murders, scandals, and disasters that once made headlines across the world. And now, they've not only fallen to the back pages, but have almost been completely forgotten. Everything you're about to hear involves some of the most powerful, wealthy, and beloved Americans of their time. Many are lives of triumph that end only in tragedy. These are history's forgotten headlines. Page 1. Murder at Harvard Medical School. This story takes place right around 1850. It was a murder that shocked the world. The victim and the accused murderer were both part of Boston's highest social class, the Brahmins. They were the wealthiest of the wealthy. But this was no crime of passion that happened one night over drinks. This was a sick, twisted, and gruesome murder. The victim's body was chopped up, and you'll hear later how most of the body was discovered. Each piece found in a different part of a room, so without a doubt, at the time, this really was the biggest trial in the world. It was the biggest case in the world, and journalists came from uh, primarily Europe, Berlin. They came from Paris. They came from London. And you have to bear in mind, you know, you didn't you know, call up your travel agent and hop on the plane and come here. Back then, to get from Europe to America was really pretty, you know, difficult and arduous and long. That is Judge R. Mark Kantrowitz. R. standing for Robert. I have never been called Robert my entire life. So we'll just stick to Mark for future references. His resume is nothing short of impressive. Grew up in New York, went to school in Ohio, and found his way to Boston, where... I'm summarizing here. He's been an assistant, district attorney, private attorney, and then a judge. Now he's retired, and he writes. And I have a love of history, and I've written uh, four now history-related type books. And uh, my latest one is called uh, Old Whiskey and Young Women, American True Crime Tales of, of, of Murder, Sex, and Scandal. Now you know why he's here. He knows this case, knows its magnitude. Over 60,000 people really about half the population of Boston at the time, were said to have moved in and out of the courtroom in 10-minute intervals just to get a glimpse of this trial. That's what we're dealing with here. A trial where at the center was Dr. George Parkman. Parkman was a very, very odd guy. He was about, you know, 5'10 or so, 5'10 and a half and then around there. And he, he, worked, he, he walked in a very stately type of man. He walked, uh, you know, very erect. Uh, and he would kind of plod down the street. He wore this big Steve Pipe uh, type of hat. His chin was uncharacteristically jutted forward, and people behind his back used to call him Mr. Chin. He just really was really an odd guy. The other central character, Harvard Medical School professor John Webster. You know, he was a Brahmin. He was a member of the uh, the ruling, the upper class, the ruling class in Boston, and that was his, those were the people with whom he associated, and he definitely lived uh, uh, above his means. And when he did come into some money, you know, he, you know somebody died and left him some money, and, and he wound up 
kind of misusing it on building a mansion, and the mansion became known as Webster's Folly because it really cost way more than it, it should have cost. And, you know, really, you know, he spent a lot of money on that that he really did not have, and he shouldn't have spent it on that, frankly. The two, Parkman and Webster, they were no strangers to one another. As a Brahmin and a member of the elite, you know, it was a small club, so everybody kind of knows everybody. And so their paths just came and, and, and crossed. In fact, Parkman, I think, recommended Webster for his position at Harvard Medical School. But one day, Webster will need one other favor from Parkman. Parkman was a, a money lender and a landlord, and he spent his day walking around collecting money from uh, various people who uh, who rented apartments from him. And and uh, Webster lived above his means, frankly, and 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 he needed money, so he was he was in hock, and he went to uh, Parkman and he borrowed money from Park. Parkman using as collateral his mineral. He had a mineral collection, which was uh, you know, which was used in academia and, and teaching, and and he used that as collateral. Now take note of that mineral collection, because remember, Webster lived beyond his means, even when it came to friends like Dr. Parkman. Forbes reports that Dr. Parkman originally loaned Webster $400. Not a big deal now, but that's about the equivalent to $10,000 today. So years go by, interest piles up, and eventually the bill grows to nearly $2,500, which would be about $60,000 now. Then one day, Parkman was walking with his friend Robert Gould Shaw on Boston's Beacon Hill. And in short, just absentmindedly says, oh, geez, there's Professor Webster. I just bought his mineral collection. And that set Parkman off. Because he was one of these very straight-laced, very moralistic people. And he said, well, how can he sell you the mineral collection when he doesn't own the mineral collection? It's collateral for me. So that just really put Parkman over the edge. And then Parkman started kind of hounding Webster. You know, where's my money? Where's my money? Where's my money? Back then, if you were accused of welching on uh, on money that you owed or not paying back a debt, number one, it was... Terrible things would happen. You can go to prison. You would, you know, society would look down upon you. So, you know, so Webster was really facing financial and personal ruin, you know, financially. This would be very destructive. And Parkman was relentless. Parkman is, is hounding. I mean, wait outside his class. Where's my money? Where's my money? And as Mark said, if everyone knew Webster was in debt, it would have ruined him at the time. Webster's greatest asset was his reputation. You know, for Brahmins, for, you know, important people, that was the number one attribute you had. If you had destroyed uh, your reputation, you know, you know, people kill themselves, they move away. It was, it was, you know, devastating. So, finally, Webster decides to pay Parkman a visit. Friday, November 23rd, uh, 18... Uh, 49, 
uh, Webster goes to Parkman's house right here on Walnut Street and says, "Hey, I'll you know I'll have the money for you later. Just come by my come by my laboratory, my lab at uh, just right down the block." And at two o'clock in the afternoon, Parkman walks over to Harvard Medical School. And that's the last we say of, of, of Dr. Parkman. He was one of those guys, who's, you know, who's always home for dinner at six or whatever time they ate dinner. So he's very, very punctual. punctual. And, and so when he didn't show up and when he didn't do his normal rounds type of thing, you know, his wife got very concerned. It was really crazy because Parkman was such a, you know, I'm there at six o'clock. You know, when he doesn't show up, you know, uh, people were very, very, very concerned. Although he did have mental episodes, so that was the hope or thought perhaps of some people that said maybe he's just having some type of mental episode and he will show up. So very quick, within a day, you know, thousands of flyers are all over Boston. There was a reward of $3,000, which is about 300 times, perhaps, exaggerating of what people made back then. You, you know, people were making, you know, very little money. And here, $3,000 is a fortune. And so Boston, it was tipped upside down. Everybody is looking for Parkman. And then, you know, because they want to get the $3,000, obviously. And I'm saying everybody, you know, they're looking at the docks, you know, and, and whenever you have events like this, it's always rumors. Oh, he was, uh, he was absconded and he's being held for ransom, or he was robbed by, you know, back then the Irish will look down upon, you know, some Irish poor thugs, you know, financially poor thugs. Uh, robbed him. He was known to carry money, obviously. So, you know, so all these rumors were flying around. And in steps the third piece of this puzzle, Efren Littlefield, the janitor at Harvard Medical School, and even lived at the school. In fact, he lived his his apartment in the medical school was right next to Webster's uh, uh, lab, and uh, he suspected something was a foul because he noticed that Webster was staying atypically late in his uh, lab that he was, uh, the furnace was going all times uh, of, of day and night, and in atypically the door was locked. So this janitor took his suspicions to the president of the college, and the president gave Littlefield all the clearance he needed, telling him to feel free to snoop around. And at the time, part of the medical school was actually on stilts because the water came right up to the building. So Littlefield grabbed maybe a hammer and a chisel, and given the period, most likely a gas lamp, and made his own back way into Webster's lab. And it was not a pleasant search by any means. 
Littlefield goes outside. He has his little chisel and his hammer, and he chisels through a lot of brick to look into the privy, the bathroom of of of, of uh, Webster. Back then, obviously, you use the privy, and your waste would go down into the into the basement. Just go down into the basement, right. you know. We just uh, fly down there. So sewage can that was sewage control. Sewage control, meaning, yeah. He was crawling through human waste. Then, you know, it's dark and dank and probably malodious. But he kept going and kept chiseling through the brick. And he chisels through and the, the brick falls on the other side and he probably puts his arm through with the light and then bam! Part of a dismembered body. He sees part of a body, you know, it's, you know, it's part of a leg, part of a head, you know, it's really this gruesome type of, of sight. So he immediately goes scrambling to the president, who alerts probably Shaw, and then uh, the police commissioner, Tukey, T-U-K-E-Y, is, is, and, and before you know it, they're flooding uh, Webster's lab. And they start searching Webster's lab, and in the furnace they see... Uh, they, did, they, they recovered teeth from the furnace in Webster's lab in, in some type of small trunk, the torso that's been hollowed up and part of a leg is in there, you know. So it's really a gruesome, gruesome, gruesome discovery. And then they go to uh, arrest Webster. And that was all they found of Partman, never even finding his head. And the police rush in, and they're about to take Webster away, and he asks a good question. What about Littlefield? The police ignore him, and a member of Boston's most powerful class is hauled away to jail. And he's held in that jail awaiting trial, and he's treated, you know, like a celebrity in the jail, you know. Park, his restaurant, is furnishing his meals, he's getting guests, they're bringing cigars to him. Well, at the same time, Boston was in shock. Brahmins just don't kill Brahmins. It was just like, it was out of the moral order of their time. They just cannot comprehend one Brahmin accused of murdering another Brahmin. It was just unthought of. It was unspeakable. Really just complete and utter shock. But that was just the beginning. Everybody initially thought Webster innocent. Okay, you know, I think suspicion initially probably went to Littlefield. And then uh, they, uh, they, they convened a coroner's jury. A coroner's jury is essentially just a group of medical examiners. And a coroner's jury typically should only have said, you know, what the cause of death is. You know, identify the deceased and what the cause of the death is. The coroner's jury went fatally one step further and unnecessarily so. They named Webster as the, you know, likely suspect, which was really shocking. And once that finding came out, then Webster was doomed, basically. Everybody thought he did it. He couldn't get legal representation. The most powerful defense attorneys at the time wouldn't even touch the case. No one would take it. So the court had to appoint attorneys to Webster, and that's when he was doomed once again. 
one of the attorneys was a civil attorney. And if that doesn't mean much, no worries. Mark puts it in layman's terms. If you have a heart problem, you're not going to go to a hand specialist. If you have a legal problem, a criminal problem, you're not going to go to a civil attorney. That's not to denigrate civil attorneys. It is to say, if you're charged with murder, get a good criminal attorney. Not good. So, as they get ready for trial, there's set to be one star witness for the prosecutors. And you remember that janitor at Harvard, Mr. Littlefield? Well, something chilling you should know about Littlefield. He was not your typical custodian. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a janitor plus. And this was the plus. Because back then... In, your med- in medical school, you need cadavers for obvious reasons, for anatomy, for dissection, etc. But it was really very highly frowned upon, and it was considered, understandably so at the time, very ghoulish. So people would look at Harvard Medical School very often and say, geez, what's going on in that building? So there was, you know, it carried some ghoulish qualities because you really weren't supposed to, you know, dissect even dead human bodies at the time. So the way to get, the way Harvard Medical School at the time procured medical bodies, needed bodies, obviously, for obviously medical purposes, was they had their janitor go out and get bodies. And and it was basically like $5 for a head and $25 for the whole body. I don't think Harvard probably asked Littlefield, how he got his bodies. So I think however he got his bodies, he got the bodies, he delivered the bodies. I could be wrong about this, obviously. He delivered the bodies to the Harvard, to the medical school, and the medical school was only too happy to get them. For, once again, for, for obvious good reasons, they needed them, the bodies. But Littlefield was the one who got the bodies, and he was used to chopping up the bodies. So if Harvard wanted a head and he had the whole body, he'd cut off the head and say five dollars. You know, here's the head. You know, so so Littlefield was the actual. He was he was a natural suspect, right? There was a big reward of three thousand dollars at the time, which was you know ten times or more his salary, and he was adept at chopping up bodies. And what did you have? You had a chopped up body. Still at this point, Littlefield was nothing more than a star witness. So the trial started, and right out of the gates, it was not good for Webster. To show you how they blew it, in their opening statement to the jury, they talk about the difference between murder and manslaughter, intimating that, you know, find my guy, if if you find him guilty, you find him guilty of manslaughter. It's ridiculous. The defense is, my guy didn't do it. So he spends his opening and his closing basically talking, well, if you find my guy did it, he didn't do it, but if you find my guy did do it, find him guilty of manslaughter. It, it, it was a foolish tactical decision. It's, it's, it's laughable. Then when Littlefield took the stand, Webster did everything he could to prove his innocence. But remember, unfortunately for Webster, he had a hand surgeon attempting heart surgery. Webster wrote literally 200 pages of notes to his attorneys saying, when Littlefield said, for instance, you know, I'm in my lab at this time, I wasn't in my lab this time, and here are the witnesses who will say I wasn't in my lab at, at that time. And as you might have guessed, Webster's attorneys just ignored his notes. They, they just didn't bring it up. The trial goes on for about two weeks, 
And again, this is in March of 1850. They had a mountain of evidence. And let me tell you, it was a very mild trial. They had models. They had the prosecution made a model of Harvard Law School. They had drawings, things that are very routine now. Back then, they had uh, dueling experts. They had the dentist, who, who the dent, Parkman's dentist, who got the teeth and then got the mold that he had made Parkman's false teeth many years before and then fit the teeth in the mold. Very dramatic. Dueling experts, the defense to their credit also. An approach that set a standard for how trials operate today, really making this the first case in U.S. legal history that dental evidence and forensic science were used in a murder trial. The twine that was used to uh, tie up part of Parkman's body, you know, they, they brought the guy in who sold the twine. They brought someone in to, you know, compare twines. It was really a very advanced trial uh, that would be tried like that today. You know, much like this is, you know, uh, in 1850. Before the trial is given over to the jury, in steps the fourth critical piece of this story, the judge. Lemuel Shaw. Judge Shaw was a big deal then and now. To this day, he's a big deal. He's considered one of our greatest justices in the history of the SJC. You know, uh, from 1830 to 1860, you had, uh, obviously, the racial, you know, you had the slave uh, situation in Boston. That's another topic for another day. And, you know, he he was involved in that. You know, he he was involved in, he made a lot of jurisprudence, including on this case, setting forth principles that are still in use today. And he was the one who created it. So, like, he was really a major, major influence, not only then, but to this day. But in this case, Judge Shaw would do something that many would question later. Webster's defense, you know, put on a, 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 they called a bunch of witnesses over two days, mainly talking about character of the individual. And also they put on five or so witnesses who said they saw Parkman Friday afternoon, long after, like Friday at 5 o'clock. The murder took place around 2 o'clock. So if these alibi witnesses be believed, well, Webster did not kill Parkman in the lab because Parkman was seen after he's supposed to be dead. So you have five witnesses for the defense testifying that Parkman was alive, and Lemuel Shaw, in his charge to the jury, essentially says, people make mistakes, and they were wrong. Which is, he became a defense, he became a a prosecutor. He said, all those witnesses who testified for Webster, they're all wrong, you know, know, they, they didn't see what they saw, you know, we all know you might see someone and you think it's that person, but it's not that person. Now, that's an argument for the prosecutor to make, not the judge to make. There is no clear explanation for what the judge did. Maybe it was wrong. Maybe it was a flaw of the times. But he does try to cover his tracks. More on that later. So the jury goes back to deliberate, and they only needed a few hours. Webster is found guilty of murder, and he's sentenced to be hanged. 
then in August, months after the guilty verdict, Webster was about to be hanged, but not before one final twist. Many still questioned, did Webster really kill Dr. Parkman? Well, before his hanging, Webster got close to a Reverend Putnam. You know, Putnam, you know, and, and Webster had these conversations, and I have no idea what the conversations consisted of. And then at some time right before he's hanged, he, you know, he confessed to, to, to the killing. So, uh, but, you know, as I said, there could be, you know, people very often confess to crimes that they never committed, and it might back then have been a real reason why he did it. Certainly what we know is that uh, Webster received an unfair trial. And remember when I said Judge Shaw tried to cover his tracks? And to show you how unfair it was, the criticism was so harsh on uh, Lemuel Shaw that everybody got together. The two defense attorneys, the two prosecutors, and Lemuel Shaw, and they basically cooked the books. They kind of rewrote what? There was no really official transcript, but there was kind of unofficial transcripts. The newspapers were reporting what happened. This fellow Stone, uh, wrote, in fact, I have that, wrote, wrote the transcript. So they basically cooked the books, and they, and they, you know, they kind of altered things just to kind of you know, cover themselves, uh, if you will. Before you make any conclusions, you may be curious what happened to the janitor, Mr. Littlefield. Well, he was never officially seen as a suspect, and frankly, never seen again. On the stand, Littlefield told the jury he had no interest in the $3,000 reward for information on Parkman's whereabouts. Well, three weeks later, he where's the reward? See, Littlefield's very interesting because he, he really disappears. He is such a, an integral part. And, and so he gets this reward. And it's just, he then, it's just, it just, he could have stayed at Harvard Medical School. He could have left. He just disappears, frankly. As for Webster's whereabouts, that too remains a mystery. They secreted his body, and then and they, they hid it, and they, they secretly buried it. The interesting thing was they were fearful of grave robbers at the time, and, and so they didn't want to mount, you know, mount Auburn Cemetery, which, where Parkman is buried, and a lot of famous people are buried. You know, Webster wanted to be buried there. He should have been buried there, but they were uh, afraid of grave uh, robbers. Maybe they were afraid of Littlefield. <laughs> So what do you think? Did Webster kill Dr. Parkman in a fit of rage over money? Or did Littlefield notice Dr. Parkman in the lab, killed him, sold his head to research, and then pocket the $3,000 reward? Was the real guilty man hanged on August of 1850 in Boston, Massachusetts? All questions that will go unanswered and eventually drift away in time, like history's forgotten headlines. Now, a few notes here. After some reading, Webster actually tried to poison himself to death right before police put him in handcuffs. He clearly failed, but he was really sick 
for some time while in jail. And we also found Webster tried to appeal his case, but the governor was unmoved. And also get this, the world was so fascinated with this case, Charles Dickens himself listed the murder room at Harvard Medical School as one place he wanted to visit on a trip to Boston. And for anyone in Boston, the Parkman House on Chestnut Street on Beacon Hill, that was the home to Dr. Parkman's nephew, Francis, who's regarded as America's first great historian. And now it's the mayor's official reception hall. And there was also a little blurb I found that was a conspiracy theory in 1884, more than 30 years after Webster was hanged. The theory? Webster's hanging was staged, and he spent the rest of his life in hiding. We'll leave you with that. I'm Justin Doherty, and while the headlines may be forgotten, just don't forget about us. Music